please join with me in Luke chapter 15. I'd like to address the subject today, does God really want me back? Does he? Many of the pharmaceuticals, of course, do infomercials and commercials, and at the end they have disclaimers. One comedian imagined the forever skinny blender having some disclaimers, and he commented, if you're not completely satisfied with your purchase of our forever skinny blender, you may be expecting way too much from a cheap juicer hawked on television. <laughs> Have you ever purchased a product and been disappointed with it? That happens oftentimes in life. There's some that actually believe and had a moment in their life, and perhaps you're in the midst of this today, where you believed that if you departed from God, things would improve in your life. That somehow a robust walk with Jesus Christ in His church and with His commandments was inferior to a walk without Him and a walk away from Him. The prodigal son discovered otherwise in Luke chapter 15. Perhaps one of the most favorite and famous stories in all the Western world and certainly in the Christian church. Here in this story, Jesus told the story of a young man who returned home. And he explained here why it was he was dwelling with the scandalous, the publicly sinful. And he used the story of the prodigal son to do so. Uh, there are three ways to describe it. One, it's a story of rebellion. Thomas Huxley said, the worst difficulties in our lives appear when we learn we can do whatever we want to do. And when that happens and we no longer have external constraints, oftentimes the worst difficulties in life appear. When we leave home for the university or when we are on our own, when we are lonely and isolated, God was entirely correct that even in the garden it's not good for the man to be alone. And that is true. Here this young man was tired of what he thought was probably constant harping. Do this, do that, take out the trash, clean your room, put the clothes in the laundry. All your life I've told you to put the cap on the toothpaste. Maybe what he heard. Kipling wrote a poem about the prodigal son and his rebellion, and he imagined the prodigal son complaining, My father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. My mother catechizes me till I want to go out and cuss. And that's oftentimes how some feel. They get so frustrated with those that are closely associated with Christ and His church. They begin to believe that a life away from Christ and His church and His commands is far superior than what they are experiencing. Now you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. And let me ask you, when he arrived at the city, what did he do? Well, look with me in verses 11 through 13 of Luke 15. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. My, oh my, we didn't see that coming, did we? Well, when he arrived at the city, did he organize a Bible study to reach others for Christ? Or did he participate in an evangelistic campaign of the city? Did he volunteer at a rescue mission? 
Uh, did he even merely settle down, enroll in school, and begin to accomplish some worthy goals? Did he attend the Baptist Campus Ministry worship service on Tuesday nights? No. Did he even write his father and thank him for his fathering? No, instead he did what comes natural for the human heart. He ran wild like a buck. He partied downtown. He consorted with prostitutes. We didn't see this coming, did we? Oh, indeed we did. There is here then in this young man no gratitude, no godliness, and no guard over his life. He is free to do whatever he wants to do by his own design, and this is what he does. It's a story of rebellion. But then it's a story of ruin as well. Verses 14 to 16 describe the ruin to which he came. It reminds me of Alar Scarborough's warning. He said, you will face difficulties to be sure. You will face more and more in disobedience. If you do God's will, you will face your difficulties with God. If you refuse, you will face them alone. Well, here's the shock of our lives. He went out and took his money, and he blew through it almost immediately. Then a famine swept over the land. Good times came screeching to a halt. He had to find a job in a down economy, and so he took a menial job that would shame him, and that is... He took up the role, probably part-time, of feeding pigs, and he was so hungry and so destitute, he would eat the pig's diet. We didn't see that coming either, did we? Well, look with me in verses 14 to 16. When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he set him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. He is totally degraded. Proverbs 27, verse number 7 is a verse you might want to commit to memory. It says, a satisfied soul loathes honey. You know, when you're hungry, you can't stand anymore, even if it's good, like honey. You loathe it. Oh, I can't, I can't eat another bite. But then, he says to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. I knew of a young man that left home, and he degraded himself with foolish living. He did not live according to what his church taught him, what his parents taught him. And he got so low in life that... Any bitter thing would taste sweet to him. He joined up and eventually married a woman that was so degraded she wouldn't even brush her teeth. They separated for a while and she lost custody of the children. Is what happened. He degraded himself. He didn't grow up that way. He didn't experience that. But he was so degraded he would clutch onto anything to satisfy his soul, even if it tasted bitter. Degraded. This young man was ruined financially, physically, socially, and vocationally. We didn't see that coming either, did we? You know, it's interesting to me. For centuries, we have warned people about the dangers of sinfulness and walking away from God. And we've warned them, you're going to, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to reap a harvest of sorrow and misery and degradation 
And has it ever occurred to you, most of them don't listen. I mean, they're wildly optimistic about their prospects. They get off into sin. They rebel against God, against His church, against His commandments. And they think, okay, you know, all these centuries, no one has ultimately enjoyed this. But this one time, I'm going to be the exception. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to degrade myself, I'm going to lower myself, I'm going to rebel against God, and I'm going to be the one exception where everything improves. I'd say that's a bit optimistic, wouldn't you? You know what happens? The world, the flesh, and the devil begin to conspire against the one who makes himself or herself vulnerable. And this young man, like many today, had the problem of assuming that the future would be surprise-free. They would step off into the future and do whatever they wanted. But this young man didn't anticipate a severe famine. It never occurred to him he might blow through all the money his father had given to him. That that might happen. But surprise You know something? It is enormously difficult to predict the future. You might be able to follow some trajectories. You might be able to make some general assumptions. You will reap what you sow, for example. But as far as getting specific, that is up to God. And God alone. Only God knows the details of the future. But I can make a prediction about the future that is always true, and it is this. The future will be unpredictable at many points. And so walking away and running away from the only one who can control and arrange the future for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose certainly does not count as wisdom. So it's a story of ruin. But then it's a story of repentance. And this is where Jesus makes a turn in the story, and it becomes a story of hope. Verse 17, When He came to Himself, and there are many that need to come to themselves, when He came to Himself, He said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. Guilt is not forever, or it doesn't have to be. Shame is not forever. It does not have to be. Instability and chaos is not forever. Things do not have to stay the same if your choices, your sinful choices and foolishness are piling on top of you and conspiring to ruin you. This does not have to stay the same. With repentance, Jesus Christ cleanses and makes new and fills with power. If you'll repent. And this repentance means to reject what it is that's keeping you from God and His church and His commandments. This means to divorce yourself from those things that displease God. You make a radical break with them. You repudiate them. One pastor said to repent means we love what we once hated and we hate what we once loved. And I think he was right. 
Well, that's what it means to repent. And, and th- here's the process for it, this young man that he went through. First, he realized. It says in verse 17, he came to himself. He began to think about himself in a new way. He was no longer falsely optimistic about his circumstances and his virtue. Look instead what he said here. And, and, and he named it right in verse 17. He ripped off the scab of his sinfulness and admitted who he was and what he had done in verse 17. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? And then he goes on. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be a son. You see, he admitted that he had sinned against heaven, a name for God. God, I had sinned against you. There was an intense spiritual consciousness about this that was shaped by the Old Testament. I have sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven is what he said. That's what we've done. We have, whenever we walk away from God and His church and His commandments, we are no longer, we're not merely just sinning against people. We're also sinning against God. And he, he choked that down, is what he did. He saw it as bad as you and I see it as we read the story. We're horrified by what the young man did. He becomes equally horrified, and the way to come back to God is just to choke down guilt and the horror of what we've done. And he has to come to the point where he admits his father, his family, his church, and his God were right, and he was wrong. And then there is a return here. He returns to the place of the original offense. He said, I will arise and go to my father. And in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. This humility with this young man changes everything because we get into rejoicing here in verse 20 through 24. He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran. This man probably hadn't run since he was a boy. It was not typical for dignified Jewish men to run anywhere. But he picks up his robe in an awkward way and runs towards his son. And when he arrives, he begins to list the evils and the miseries his son had brought upon the family, right? Oh, no. No, it says he ran and fell on his neck and he kissed him. And Jesus is describing what God will do for you today if you'll return. And then he goes on to say, In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he states this twice. He imagines it back in the far country. When he comes home, he keeps his resolution. It's the second time this is stated. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. In other words, he had enormous joy. The father was bursting with joy over the return of his son. There is hope for anyone who's walked away from God, his church, or his commandments today, for anyone who will repent. Now here's the significance of this story. Jesus illustrated here with this story why you should trust that God wants you back with him, is what he did. And there's several reasons why. One reason, 
God still exposes critics. You know, it's hard to deal with criticism, isn't it? I remember I was a camp pastor in 1989 in Glorieta, New Mexico, at the Baptist Conference Center out there. And we had 600 or more students every week, along with their adult counselors. And every one of them would evaluate us every week. Because I was the camp pastor and I spoke to the largest crowd, I had more evaluations on me than anyone else in the whole staff of 16 people. Do you know what it's like, people, to be evaluated by 600 people in a week? Ten straight weeks in a row? That is 6,000 evaluations. Now, most people were very generous, and they were very kind. They said nice things. Most of them exaggerated. But there was one counselor from one church in North Dallas who ripped me open, and he said he is conceited, and he is arrogant, and he ought to go home and kill himself. Well, he really didn't say that, but I sure did feel like doing it when I was done with that evaluation. Well, I did that for the summer of 1989. I did that for the summer of 1988. I did that for the summer of 1991. That is the only hostile evaluation I received in all those years. You know, we did it at the end of the week when everyone's juiced up and real spiritual, so they were real kind, uh, which was a great benefit to us. But that one evaluation now, more than 25 years later, is the only one I remember. If I think about it too long, I'll swim in it like a toxic pool. And that's why some of you have not come back to Christ yet. You've not returned to the God who loves you because you're afraid of what other people will say. You're afraid of being criticized. Hey, I got news for you now. You're being criticized now. It probably isn't going to get any worse than what it is now. But let me tell you why Jesus told this story. In fact, this is the third part of a three-part story. He begins with the parable of the lost sheep in verse 3, then the parable of the lost coin in verse 8, then the parable of the lost son. And it's really one parable, because back in Luke chapter 15, look with me there, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Then all the tax collectors, notorious for their compromise, and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable singular to them. And so what we have here is that Jesus is explaining why he is compassionate and gracious to those who've walked away from his God. How would you have liked to have been a Pharisee or scribe that day? And Jesus tells one of the most famous stories in Western history against you, and we've been focusing on it for 2,000 years. In other words, Jesus has taken these critics from the first or from. Um, uh, from the first century, and magnified them before the world for 2,000 years as what not to do. I want to say to you, you return to your God today and Jesus Christ will take care of your critics. Don't you worry about it. And, and quite frankly, whatever criticism you're receiving now for your foolish choices, uh, the truth is, the vast majority of your critics are going to be elated and they will rejoice if you'll return to your God today. You'll eliminate a lot of that criticism just simply by repenting today. And for those who won't, I will say to you, it's not a popular thing or a well-received thing here at Beach Haven or many churches to keep criticizing someone who returns to God. Don't you worry about the criticism. God and, and your church family will take care of it. So God still exposes critics. 
But there's a second reason you need to trust Him, that He wants you back. And that is, God still magnifies grace. Grace is God's greatest gifts to those who least deserve them. God still magnifies grace. He does in verse 22 with this young man. He gives him a robe, perhaps his robe, or a very special family heirloom robe. A ring. The father would use this to seal documents, legal documents, financial documents. And sandals. Most slaves wouldn't wear shoes at all, but he gave him some sandals. The young man anticipated being nothing more than a hired servant. He was willing to do that. You need to come back to God with the same disposition and mood. But the father wouldn't hear of it. He elevated him. In fact, when this young man came back, he came back extremely degraded and in a moment of humility was extremely exalted. Now that makes perfectly good sense to those of you who know the Gospel of Luke. Because in Luke, Jesus emphasizes He who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself shall be humbled. And that is a theme of the first three Gospels, especially Luke. So this is a story of extremes. He he returns extremely degraded, and he, in a moment of humility, is transformed into extreme exaltation. In other words, the boy had been ruining, ruining himself in every area of reality, but when he returns in humility and repentance, the father treats him like a war hero as King David who's just defeated the Philistines. And he treats him as if he had never had any guilt, but only had virtue. Now, he knew better. He knew what his son had been doing. But this is the graciousness of the Father. The young man was utterly forgiven. Nothing reserved. And God promises the same to you. In fact, one preacher said, the only kind of forgiveness that God dispenses is utter forgiveness. There's none other. And that's what God wants to do for you. Now, what do you think the young man expected when he returned home? Oh, what a surprise here. You see, the future is not free of surprises. So imagine his surprise. And there are surprises in store for you when you return to God today. And that is, you'll be surprised at what great relief you feel. What great joy you've missed and have been missing but now have. At the worship that will gush out of your soul to the God who loves you. At how comfortable you feel around these, these people. You'll be surprised at... How many have gone through something similar as as you have? How much sympathy they will have for you and how much energy they will give to prayers for you now that you've come back and how much they gave to you as you were astray. How, How quickly confusion will evaporate. How specifically God will guide you now that you have surrendered to Him. How useful you can be. How persuasive and convincing you can be as you tell your story of God's goodness and God's grace. John Bunyan said, great sin draws out great grace. And that's what happens when God sees magnanimous, grotesque sin, His grace burgeons and and boils and and, uh, is magnified in Him because He wants to give it to those who have sinned and He will to anyone who humbles themselves or repent. Great sin draws out great grace. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, and church let us shout it always. So God still magnifies grace. 
But the final reason you need to believe God wants you back is that God still values prodigals. A.W. Tozer said, because God is self-existent, His existence doesn't depend on anyone else, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love has no end. Because He is infinite, His love has no limit. Because He's holy, His love is the epitome of all spotless purity. Because He's immense, His love is in an incomparably vast, bottomless, shoreless sea There is more than enough love of God for prodigals than you will ever need, more than you can imagine. Just dive in and trust Him. Now some would complain about some of the language here in Luke 15. They would say, I don't think that we should call non-Christians or those who were sinful lost. It's not a very polite term. Well, there are three rules of Bible study I want you to keep in mind. One, you need to keep in mind the stress that is found at the end of a story. Oftentimes what is emphasized is found at the end of the story. And that is true for verse 7, verse 10, and verse number 32, the end of these three stories. Then you need to pay attention to the words that are spoken. There's the story, and then there's dialogue in the story. But then the third thing is repetition. Look with me here in chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus here talks about having a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. So the word loss or lost appears there. Verse number 6 as well. He comes home, calls his friends and neighbors together after finding his sheep. He said, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Jesus mentions the word lost about people, referring to people, in verse 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 24, and 32. And the father rejoices in verse number 24 about this young man and uses the same word lost. For this son of mine was dead, and we could paraphrase, he was dead to me, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. When his older brother complains about it, he says to him in verse number 32, It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead to me and alive again and was lost and is found. Let me ask you a question about the word lost or loss. When do you use that word? Let's say you lose a sinus infection. Do you say, I lost my sinus infection? No. What about when you lose your keys? Do you lose your keys? Do you lose your cell phone? So why do you use the word lost for keys and cell phone, but you don't lose it for a sinus infection or some other malady or illness? One word. Value. You do not value sinus infections. You don't want anything to do with one or any other sickness. But you value your keys. You value your, uh, your wallet. You value your cell phone. You value your health. You value your hair. You value... <laughs> you value... You value what is precious and important to you. Ladies and gentlemen... When Jesus uses the word lost for those that have gone away from God or who do not know Jesus Christ, he is accurately describing where they are. 
They're lost from God. They're lost from hope. They're lost from joy. They're lost from service to Him. But he's also describing the great value He places in them. Now, if you know the rest of the gospel story, that comes as no surprise to you, does it? What is the ultimate demonstration of God's value of the lost? What is it? His cross. And there Jesus Christ goes to the cross because He values the lost out of love. There was nothing in it for Him that He didn't have already. But He goes and has Himself executed at the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins because He values you. There is enough love and grace of God to meet every need and exigency of your life. That's how much God loves you. You may doubt that, but Spurgeon said, Look at yourself and your doubts will increase. Look to Jesus and they will disappear. So let me ask you, will you trust and return to this God who sent His Son to give you such comfort as this? Your best friend was wounded at the cross in your place and bled and died there. Does that not move you to trust today? Well, you don't know how far I've strayed. It's easy for you to say that. You might say, if my sin had a smell, you couldn't stand it. My reply is, stop looking at yourself. Look to Jesus. What Jesus did at the cross is enough. It is sufficient. And I would say to you as well, you have trusted other humans. You sat down on your pew today. You trusted the manufacturer of it. If you ever boarded a plane, you trusted a perfect stranger to fly it safely and land it safely. If you ever taken prescription medication, you trusted the medication, probably the name of which you could not pronounce, the prescription written you could not read, and the pharmacist you did not know. In fact, if you've only listened to this message today, you know more about God probably than your pharmacist. But you trusted humans. Friends, it's time to trust Jesus Christ today and to give your all to Him. Let's pray that someone will today. Would you stand with me quickly, please? Now, Lord, I want to thank You that as some struggle today, there's no struggle with You when it comes to Your grace and Your love and Your protection. There are some whose souls are trembling with a lot of anxiety and fear over returning to you because of their shame, their guilt. They're often worried. And I want to pray that you will press upon friends today that Christ is ready and He is adequate for every need today and help them to come back to you. Help them to return in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. Since 1959, this church has stood as a beacon and thousands have come like we're asking you to come. And they've been much like you are today. They've been in need for Christ. And Jesus has met them here. Now, He's everywhere. He can meet you everywhere. But we offer practical help today as our staff stand at the front of these aisles here in the front. We're going to ask you to step out from where you are and come meet one of them and share your spiritual need so that we can help and serve you. Why don't you come? God wants some of you to become part of this church or to follow Him in baptism. 
or to surrender to ministry or missions, why don't you come as well? Tim's going to lead us. You have just a few moments to respond. We won't go on forever today, but you have the chance now to come. Would you come? Come. Come. Come to him.